for the last few months, excuse me, brother, uh, for the last few months, we've been looking at the life of David. And for several chapters before this, we saw David, the picture was painted of a king who was the man after God's own heart being the king. We saw him dealing faithfully with Jonathan's son. We saw him dealing faithfully and covenantally with the Ammonites. We saw him doing all the things he should do. And the writer on purpose reuses that phrase that's translated as faithfully or, or, or covenantally. And over and over he says that David is doing inside of the country with his people that he knows and loves the way he should act. And outside of the country with the enemies of God he is doing things the way he should act. There is nothing in the text to set us up to be prepared for what comes next. Last week we saw how from the start of the chapter through the end, it got uglier and uglier and uglier. It started out with David laying around on the couch late afternoon. The rest of Israel had gone to war. The kings had all gone to war. Joab had taken Israel's troops to war. And David's laying on the couch, playing on his phone. He was where he shouldn't be, when he shouldn't be. And then David gets out. He sees someone uh, taking a bath. He's like, hey, that's a good-looking girl. And then he goes from sin to sin to sin. He, she's brought to him. He has sex with her. And then she sends the word, hey, uh, I'm pregnant. And so then, instead of stepping up and being a man, what he does is he puts his troops, the military, at great risk by bringing one of the commanders off the field to try to cover up his sin. That didn't work, so he ended up going so far that he took a friend of his, someone that he had known for years and years and years, and as this text says, you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. His behavior in this text is described not as anything other than, you despised me, God said. He, knowing that Joab would be upset about what he did, wrote Joab a letter and said, don't let this thing be evil in your sight. Don't let it be a big deal. In just a few, in fact, we would end this chapter thinking that David had gotten away with it except for the very last phrase. Joab, he said, don't think what I've done is evil in your sight. And the text ends by saying, but the Lord thought that what David did was evil. But David had gotten away with it. Nobody knew. Everybody in the country is looking at David and they're thinking, isn't it sweet how he took that poor widow lady and married her? It had all covered up. And then the next chapter starts, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, we know who Nathan is. Nathan is, is the prophet. We saw Nathan just a few chapters before, after David had brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Remember, it was David and Nathan that were sitting around, and when David said, you know what, Nathan? I'm going to build the Lord a house. And so Nathan was known to be God's man. He knew how to pray. He knew how to communicate with God, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan could have come in, And hammered David. But Nathan loved David enough to expose his sin in such a way that showed David exactly how wicked he was. So he says to David, David, 
I've got a problem. I want to run past you. There's a man in a certain city who is rich. And he has got all kinds of cattle. He's got all kinds of flocks. He's got everything that he needs. He's got a neighbor who's a poor man. And this poor man goes out and buys himself one little ewe lamb. And he loves that ewe lamb with everything that he's got. It's a pet. He, that ewe lamb is around his kid. I guarantee you in this story, if it was today, he would say, he calls that ewe lamb his fur baby. He loves that little ewe lamb. He f- sleeps in the bed with him. He feeds that ewe lamb out of his plate and lets that ewe lamb drink out of his cup. He loves that little ewe lamb. His kids grow up around that little lamb and they love it. It's their favorite pet. They love that animal and it skips through the house like it's one of his daughters. So David sits back. He's like, yeah, this is a good story. I like this. And being in an agricultural environment, this is something that he's familiar with. When we had cows, I on purpose named the cows Barbie, like for barbecue. I didn't want my kids to get too attached to the cows, but it didn't matter. They knew all the cows by name, and they would love to go out and brush the cows. And, oh, he's so sweet. So if a cow did happen to go to the auction or go to slaughter, we would just have to talk about how I'd gone on a trip. Came back as hamburger. but, uh, But this little lamb grew up in this man's house. Now, the rich man had a guest that came from afar. Now, in that culture, if you have a guest that comes, the thing that you're supposed to do is provide for them. When, I, uh, when we lived in Turkey, it was, I used to always joke with people that I knew that if I went out into the villages that I wasn't going to be paying for a hotel that night because guaranteed what happened is that all the men would hang out in front of some shop, either barber shop or a tea shop or something, and all the old men would be sitting there drinking tea, playing, it's actually like Rummy Cube, it's called okay, and they'd be playing this game with dominoes, and you would sit down and talk to them and make sure it was okay to be there, and somebody would say, so what are you doing here? And we would, we would say, you know, that we have an adventure travel company, and we're, we're in this area, and we want to bring people in, and they, somebody would say, well, you're spending the night at my house tonight. And guaranteed, if I went to somebody's house, they would impoverish themselves to feed me. They would make sure that I had their absolute best. When we had teams that came from America, we would sit them down before we took them out and said, look, here's the deal. The most rude, obnoxious thing a person can say in everywhere in the world except America is, I don't like that. So when you walk into somebody's house, I want you to understand that they are taking the food that they've collected for a week to feed their family, and they're going to feed it to you in one night. And so when you sit down at their table, I don't care if you like what they serve you or not. I don't care if they serve you cat. You smile and say, thank you so very much, and eat it. So this is exactly what happens here. A visitor comes from afar, and so it's expected that he's going to provide a meal for this family. And so what does he do? Does he go to his many animals and get a a critter? No, he goes to his poor next-door neighbor who's got one little ewe lamb, this ewe lamb that he loves, and he takes that ewe lamb, and the text even builds out what he does. He kills it, he dresses it, and he cooks it and serves it to his guest. David is infuriated. In fact, he goes off the the chain a little bit and he goes, he should die. Who is the man 
I want to know who this is. Just, just as God has made me king, this guy's going to pay him back four times. Who's the man? And Nathan looked at him square in the face and said, you are the man. All of a sudden, David's, the curtain is pulled back on David's sin. David knew he had been caught. And Nathan did it in such a way that exposed completely what was going on in David's heart. David had everything that God could give him, pressed down, overflowing, and yet David had gone to Uriah's and stole his little ewe lamb. So now David isn't the man anymore. You are the man. I made you king. I gave you everything that you've got. Up to this point, David has acted despicably. Up to this point, David has been a horrible human being, much less a horrible believer. And I wanted last week us to see that we need to be really careful how we point fingers because every one of us, no matter how great your walk with the Lord is, you are susceptible to any temptation that comes. And we said last week, every man of God is one prayerless day, one day out of God's word away from failure. And so you need to be on guard with your heart. And so David here is confronted with his sin. And the first thing that we hear him say is, I have sinned. And so from this point forward, we can now learn how to repent. Now, I want to tell you, it is really easy for us to look at David and be judgmental and say, oh, what a wicked man. But if we're really honest with each other, if you're really honest with your own heart, we need to learn the lesson from this point forward in David's life. We need to know how to repent, how to get away from our sin. And so I want us to look deeply at what happens here because from this point forward and looking over into Psalm 52, we have a lot to learn. So the first thing we notice is that he said, I have sinned. He didn't make excuses. He didn't blame his mama for raising him wrong. He didn't blame his daddy for being harsh. He didn't blame a chemical imbalance in his head. He didn't blame the society at large pushing images of women in front of him. He didn't point his finger at somebody else. He owned his sin. He said, I've sinned. I was wrong. It is so hard in our culture for us to admit and confess when we do something wrong and own it. If you watch TV, in fact, uh, today to, we were in the young married Sunday school class or the middle married, whatever we're going to call ourselves. Uh, we, we were looking, watching a video and in that he was talking about when you and your wife get into an argument, you need to tell her you're sorry and not wait for her to to list her list of things that she did wrong as well, you need to learn how to just say, I'm sorry. And if you look at videos of celebrities or sports stars when they apologize, how pathetic it is, right? And the one that he brought up uh, in his video is, is so telling. I'm sorry if you've been offended. Well, that's not an apology. In fact, you're shifting the blame to me. If you weren't such a wimp and wouldn't have got offended, then this wouldn't be a problem. 
David didn't blame somebody else. He didn't blame Bathsheba. Well, she shouldn't have been naked up on her roof. He didn't blame society for driving him in a certain way. He didn't blame his testosterone. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. He owned it. So the first step, in fact, in the New Testament, it says, if you want to deal with your sin, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And that word confess is the word we stumble over. Because confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing. And God doesn't call our sin anything but sin. If you lied, you lied. If you got angry and acted like a three-year-old, you sinned. It wasn't the circumstances. It wasn't just what happened because you were a bad person. You have to own that you sinned and you're in control of your actions and your actions were bad. In fact, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 52 because here we read the chronicler sums up David's prayer. I'm sorry, Psalm 51. But we have the whole entirety of the prayer in Psalm 51. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. He doesn't mealy mouth, it's sin. So the first step for us to abandon our sin is to admit that it's sin that it's wrong, that it's wicked, there is no excuse. That given the best of circumstances, I sinned and would have sinned again. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now that's a weird thing for David to say here. Because he's also sinned against Bathsheba. He's also clearly sinned against Uriah. He's sinned against Bathsheba's a father who was a friend of his, he sinned against a bunch of people. Why would he say here, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Because the, most, the person who was sinned against the most is God. Now, what that means is, is that the first step for me abandoning my sin is to apologize to the God who forgave me. Remember when Jesus was, the, the guy was lowered down from the roof in the, in the, the story where Jesus is teaching. We, I taught on it maybe two years ago. And, and these guys bring their buddy who is sick and lowers him down from the roof. And it was all of the Pharisees sat back to see what he was going to do. And Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. And, or no, he said, I'm sorry. He said, your sins are forgiven. And all the Pharisees in their mind said, only God can forgive sin. Who does this man think he is? Well, the reality is, is that the Pharisees were right in that. I can't walk up to somebody. I can't walk up to Ron here and slap the fire out of him and then say, Ann, will you forgive me for hitting Ron? Because she probably is going to forgive me, right? Ron's going to be sitting here going, hey. When we sin, the person we sin against the most is God. He's the one who made you. He's the one that worked in your life. And so only God can forgive sin. 
In fact, Jesus said to them, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin, I say to you now, arise, pick up your bed and walk. And immediately the man got out of his bed, picked up his bed and walked out. So Jesus can forgive sin because he is representing God. He is God. And so what we see here is that David confessed his sin. He agreed that it was sin and he confessed it to God. He recognized that he was deserving of punishment. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And what David is talking about here is, God, I need a heart change, not just an outward change. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. We have to recognize that to turn from our sin requires an inner change. Now, in church, most of my life, what I have heard is this. Okay, you're sinning. You are living in anger, you're looking at pornography, you're drinking, you're smoking, you're chewing, you're dancing, whatever the sin is. You're moving in this direction. You are fighting for your happiness. I get what I deserve and I'm sinning. I'm doing whatever I want to do. So from the church, what we normally say is, stop that. We tell the kids, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. This is what you're supposed to do. You need to stop that. But if I'm moving in this direction and all I do is stop, I'm here to tell you it ain't gonna work. You can't white knuckle your way through temptation. If I, if Ann and I are in an argument and I'm sitting there saying to myself, shut up, shut up, shut up. You shouldn't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. What's gonna happen is that's gonna build, 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 build and then I'm gonna be a jerk because it's gonna explode and you don't have to say Amen. If I'm sitting around going, I'm not going to do this, 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 my focus is on my sin, and I'm going to do it. I can't overcome my sin on my own, which is why in recovery programs, there's like a 90% recidivism rate, because you can't fight your own sin by just saying, don't do it. And so often, that's what the church does, we just stop at that. Don't drink. Don't do it. But what he says here is that I've got to have a change of heart. That God has to change my want-tos. And so repentance, the confession is agreeing with God that it's sin. Repentance is a really easy word to understand. It just means to turn around. I'm walking this way. I'm fighting for myself. I want what I want. God, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm moving in this direction. And so confession is stopping and saying, hey, that's wrong. And that is a huge step. I mean, I've often, I've always believed that bad theology gives birth to bad action, right? If we believe the wrong things about God, we end up doing bad stuff. But the older I'm getting, the more I'm learning that bad actions beget bad theology. If you look at the recent smattering of Christians who have walked away from the faith, 
in just about every case, what has happened is they walked away from the faith a long time ago and started doing what they wanted to do. And so they changed their theology to justify what they were doing. They were saying, God, you don't have the right to tell me what to do. I want to go cheat on my wife. I want to live a homosexual lifestyle. I want to do what I want to do. And so the Bible won't let me do that. So I'm going to all of a sudden start talking about how, how excited I am about how I'm walking away from the faith. Because then I can do what I want to do. And there's nobody there to judge me. True confession is saying, God said it's sin. I'm not going to do it anymore. But then I turn. That to the rear march. So I'm going the way I want to go. And then I turn. That's repentance. Repenting is to turn. And now I'm not just facing the other way. I'm going the other way. And so with the same energy, the same heart, the same way that I was moving to do what I wanted to do, now I'm moving to do what God wants me to do. We see that in the text. I'm not just making this up because then he says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O Lord, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So now he's doing stuff, but he's doing stuff in the right direction. If all you do is stop, it's not going to last. It's just not. But if you start, if you use the same energy that you had to do what you want to do toward doing the things that God's called you to do, That'll revolutionize your life. I mean, I have never heard of on a Friday night in a college town, somebody walking around having to beg people to go get drunk. Hey, man, if you would just come have this experience with me, I think you would really enjoy it. Just try it just this one time. Let's just go. No, nobody has to do that because we naturally want to do what we want to do. So there's excitement. There's enthusiasm. All right, woohoo! I'm going to get my drunk on. Let's go. Woo! I mean, we don't have to have bouncers in church for a reason, right? Because nobody gets so excited about the Lord. Somebody has to say, could you please step outside with me? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you need to just tone it down. Everybody's trying to have fun here today. Trying to just serve the Lord, but just tone it down. No, we don't have to do that. So what I'm saying is, is with that same energy that you went after what you wanted, the same energy that you used for your sinning, if you will use that same energy to go after the things of God, God can change the world with you. If you got up in the morning and said, today I'm going to read a couple of verses and I'm going to spend the day meditating on thinking about what those verses said. Today I'm going to talk to my God. Today I'm going to serve my king in everything that I do. As I'm going around making tires, I'm making tires in Jesus' name. If I'm going around policing, I'm policing in Jesus' name. If I'm retired, I'm going to be the most retired person possible in Jesus' name. <laughs> but if you live your life to do everything that you do so that it glorifies God, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're being changed. And God's working in our heart. At church, so often we just stop at the stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. I guarantee you, if you were to go around our community and ask people, what does the church represent? All they can tell you about the church is what we're against. It's 
all they know. That's because all swell we talk about. That's bad. Don't watch that on TV. Don't, at CBS, how dare you put that on TV? Don't do that. Don't, ah, stop that. And that doesn't do anything to anybody. What we want the world to know about us is that we love Jesus with the passion of a thousand sons. That we know that we're the biggest losers who ever have lived and yet God saved us anyway. If we could get as passionate about our king as we have been about our sin, then oh dear Lord, we could change the world. Now, David here talks about that change of heart. And as we're talking about that, that turn, that repentance, you can't do it on your own. You can't. Again, I can look around the world and I can see people who try. I can see lots of religions that try to force that. So this morning, what we're going to do, instead of having a time of invitation, is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus made a way. See, when I was lost in my sin, I wasn't seeking God. I, a few years ago, we used to use the term, we're a seeker-friendly church. And I think the Bible says that Jesus is the one who came to seek and save that which is lost. And I praise my Savior. I praise God that he came looking for me because I wasn't looking for him. And there's two points to this, these elements that we'll take. One, the little juice cup, the fruit of the vine represents his blood. It's the new covenant in his blood. And the little crackers that we'll take, that represents his body that was broken for you. And as we distribute those elements, I want that, there's going to be a pause. It's going to, uh, in fact, let's go ahead and start now, gentlemen. Let's go ahead and come forward. There's going to be a pause as the elements are, are being distributed, uh, as people are passing out the little crackers and the, the juice. And this is the perfect time for you. There's nothing magical about these stairs. If you're sitting in this audience and there's sin in your heart that you've been fighting, that I beg you, take this time to confess that it's sin. Talk to your God, just like David did. Confess that it's sin, and then repent and start moving in the other direction. As they are begin, uh, let's go ahead and start distributing the elements. At this time, again, if you want to bow your head and close your eyes, if you want to come down to the altar, this altar is open. But right now is the time for you to look into your heart, for you to look deep. What sins am I holding on to? What am I hanging on to that I say is mine? What area of your life have you said, God, you can't have that one? That incognito tab, you're not getting into that, God. God, this area where I want to tell my wife what to do, you can't have that. God, this anger problem that I'm struggling with, you can't have that. God, this area over here, you can't have that. Now is the time to confess that as sin. Repent and turn.